Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I'd like to address tonight in the talk two questions that might be coming up for you. What am I doing here? And why am I doing it? These are reasonable questions if you happen to hear them in your mind. If this is new to you, it's a pretty bizarre thing to do. This is not what we usually have in mind when we write about our summer vacation. <clears throat> Even if you've been doing it for a long time, I, I remember the first time actually uh, I had done a three-month retreat after doing a number of two-week or ten-day retreats. And by the fourth day I was saying, 11 weeks, two days, 15 hours, and 20 minutes more. This is crazy. Um, uh, I stuck it out and uh, it was well worth it and I went back for more. But at the beginning, after you um, arrive in this first day, which takes some uh, getting used to, um, is often a challenge. The thought about the purpose of why you're here um, seems to be important to get clear. You might be f- finding yourself wondering if this is the right meditation for you or maybe another spiritual path would be a little bit more fun. Um, people like a little fun on the first day. Actually, at the beginning, uh, it's um, almost guaranteed to bring up a little bit of resistance as you start, as you're told when to sit, when to walk, how to eat, um, with a structure and schedule, and to pay attention. And what you're paying attention to often, or what you're noticing, is the fact that your mind is everywhere and your body is kind of uncomfortable. At the beginning, this is the common experience. It's a bit like fasting, if you've ever done any fasting, the first part of a fast, all the toxins come out and it's, it's kind of uncomfortable and you see some food around and you say, wow, give me some of that. But as you continue with it and clean out, it gets lighter and uh, richer and you understand the, the power behind it. It's like this in this practice. <clears throat> What am I doing and why am I doing it? There's lots of kinds of meditation. There's TM and there's um, chakra meditations and visualizations and all sorts of things. You go into a store uh, that has any metaphysical section and you can just be overwhelmed by the choices. They're all meditation practices that have been shared and taught because they work for somebody. 
and there's been enough value that it's passed on to, to others. Just about all the practices that are called meditation have a common denominator of getting beyond or through the chatter in the mind to some place of deeper connection, deeper understanding. And there's a number of different ways that you can do that. A lot of the meditation practices have to do with focusing the attention on one particular um, object, whether it's the breath or a visualization or a sound or something to, to look at. And that allows some kind of calming and stilling of the mind There are other kinds of practices that have to do not so much with fixing the attention on one thing, but on the present moment of experience. What is happening now? What's called moment-to-moment concentration. And this is what Vipassana practice is about. Today, this first day, we've been working with the breath. This is not the full range of the practice that we'll be doing. We start out on the breath so we can develop some stability and composure and focus of attention so that then that focus, that awareness, can be applied to any part of our experience. So this first part is a bit like using the breath as a sharpening stone. You know, if you sharpen a knife or some some cutting instrument. And as it gets more and more refined and workable, it can then see through all parts of our experience. But I wanted to talk primarily tonight about this kind of awareness that we're developing here over the course of this week. It's often referred to as mindfulness. That's the word that probably comes up more than any in the, uh, in the traditional teachings. Mindfulness, consciousness, awareness. One phrase that's often used is bare attention, B-A-R-E, bare attention. I want to give you a sense of what bare attention means so uh, you see the reason for, for doing this practice. One quality of bare attention is to see things as they are. Nothing extra, no frills. The word vipassana means to see things as they are, to see things clearly. And what that means is just calling it like it is, an accurate description of experience. You know, the old um, dragnet show, if you're old enough to remember, Jack Webb and and Sergeant Friday, and he'd go knocking on the door and this usually stereotypical hysterical woman would come and tell about the crime that happened and he'd say, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Well, we'll start off with just the facts. What's actually happening right now? We often like to 
either glorify or intensify experience as we either report it to others or take it in in ourselves. I grew up in New York where people live in superlatives. This was the most boring day of my life. This was the most fantastic movie I ever saw. And it's not only New Yorkers who do that. I think many people have a tendency to just squeeze a little bit extra out of life to make it more vivid, more real. But in a way that takes away from the power of your perception and also your um, accuracy in reporting and sharing your experience with others. You ever notice that you might take things with a grain of salt from somebody who speaks in superlatives, whereas somebody who just says what's so, you know, it's like the E.F. Hutton commercial, you know, oh, I want to hear this person, what they have to say. Seeing things as they are and just calling it like it is It takes some practice for many of us. And as you're doing this practice, you might want to have a a wonderful experience or um, uh, something that you can talk to people about how profound it is. And there can be a tendency to just make it a little bit extra. My knee was going to fall off in another minute. You wouldn't believe how intense it was. Well, maybe it was uncomfortable. The beauty of the practice of just seeing things as they are is that anything is okay. You're not trying to create an experience so you can have a wonderful report. You're just allowing for whatever is here to be here. So you can let go of responsibility for what's happening. It's a tremendous burden to let go of. So that when you're spaced out, I'm spaced out. When you're clear, ah, here's some clarity. When you've got a lot of fear, oh, and here's fear. When you're bored out of your skull, ah, and here's boredom. No problem with that. And as you start to understand that, it just takes a weight off of your shoulders if you're prone to any kind of um, report card in your meditation. So seeing things as they are. A second quality of bare attention, or this mindfulness, is learning to be here in the present moment. This is not where many of us spend a lot of time. You might have noticed it throughout the day. What could be simpler than paying attention to this breath coming in and going out? A lot of things can be simpler, as it turns out. It's really hard. Have you noticed how hard it is? I don't know why, But that's how we're wired up. We've got a very active mind, a lot of things that get touched. We find ourselves toppling forward to the next thing or remembering how things were or daydreaming in our in our minds. And it's so elusive this moment that's right here, right now. 
And when you think about it, it's the only moment that there is. If you're fantasizing about the future, what moment are you doing that in? You're doing it in this one, right now. That's what's happening. A thought about the past, where is it? It's happening right now, in this moment. But we miss it. And it it is a big price to miss this moment while we're lost in thought. Because this is the place that life is happening. And if we're in our thoughts about past or future, we're missing out on life. It's a second-hand experience. It's like reading the book instead of living the play. And it's not something that's unique to you if you find yourself in this predicament. This is what most of us do, even for the most wonderful experiences. Suppose you're looking forward to a a wonderful evening, to a a concert, a music concert that uh, you've been really uh, eager to see and, and eager to hear. And throughout the day, you're wondering what it's going to be like and looking forward to spending time with a friend, perhaps. Then you get to the, to the concert. You ever notice what happens as, as the music is being played? Unless it's a very, very gripping piece, the mind goes in and out. You think about where you were, what happened that day, what's going on in your life, kind of daydreaming. And the times that you are really here are, have such a qualitative difference to them then there's that response of, wow. The wow is, wow, I was really here for this incredible gift. The times that we're usually here are either peak experiences or traumatic moments that rivet us to the present. But for most of the rest of the time, we seem to miss out a little bit, a little bit ahead of ourselves, a little bit behind. Have you noticed during the day as you were sitting, wondering when the bell was going to ring so you could go do the next thing? And then when the next thing was walking, you'd be walking for a few minutes perhaps, wondering when the bell would ring for the next thing, which was sitting. After a while, you kind of get that uh, there's nothing else happening, and so you start to settle down into into being here. There's a wonderful cartoon, perhaps you're familiar with, this um, Zen student, this new student, is sitting next to uh, an experienced student, and the new one is looking out towards the door, and the old student is saying, nothing happens next, this is it. Well, when we miss out on our moment by being a little bit ahead or a little bit behind, and that becomes the condition that we find ourselves in moment after moment after moment, except for those peaks or traumas, what happens is we miss out on our life. And it goes by very, very quickly, doesn't it? 
for me, sixth grade is just a moment ago. I was just in Mrs. Oxman's class, it seems, you know. How fast does our life go by? If we can learn to be here more and more for what's happening now, then every moment counts. It's not waiting for the next peak experience. And it takes some practice. In the present is the place where the possibilities of real connection, of real love, of real um, aliveness are. All of those things that you value, intimacy, vitality. This is the place for it, right here. But it takes practice. So, seeing things as they are, being here in the present. A third aspect of bare attention or mindfulness, as you start paying attention or trying to pay attention to the present moment, something becomes increasingly clear. And that is that the present is constantly changing. It doesn't stop and you can just hang out in it. It is this continual transformation of experience. Now, this might not seem like news to you, but when you have a direct experiential understanding of that fact, of that law of reality, that everything is changing, and this is the way that you approach your life with that understanding deeply rooted within you, it changes your relationship to experience. When you're having a difficult time, if you forget that things change, there can be a tendency to become very frightened or feel that you're going to get stuck or perhaps press the panic button and say, "Uh uh-oh, no way out. Whereas if you really understand, and the meditation shows this in a very direct way, how things are always changing, when it's difficult, there's not that sense of panic because there is, a se- there is an understanding of the fluidity of the process. Ah, yes, this too will pass. Same when you're having a wonderful experience. Suppose you have a delicious meditation and by some grace, there you are, feeling your breath, feeling complete and actually being mindful. What happens when we forget that things change is we try to hold on to that experience. Great, I finally got this meditation stuff down. How do I make sure I don't lose it? I did this the first retreat I had. It was, uh, I just dropped into this glorious space. And for the next two or three days, I spent my time trying to recapture it. Uh, It was a very powerful interview when the teacher said that he had spent nearly two years trying to recapture an experience and I didn't have to spend all my time doing that. Oh, okay, I'll just be with how it is. 
when you see how everything is changing, there is a sense of ease and workability with the moment. And this is what the mindfulness shows. So seeing things as they are, being here or practicing being here in the present, noticing how our present experience is constantly changing. How many different thoughts have you had today? How many? I just heard recently that some scientists tried to track the mental activity and came up with the average number of thoughts as 60,000 in a day. It seems kind of conservative to me, but uh, I don't know how they they tracked it, but that's that was the outcome. 60,000, 200,000, maybe a million. Any of them stay? How many different moods have you had today? Gee, it's great being on a retreat. No phones, nothing to bother me. Boy, this is boring. Boy, it's kind of nice. This is kind of exotic and intriguing. Wait till I tell my friends I was on a silent retreat for eight or nine days. Pretty far out. Let me out of here. I got to go. How can I make a graceful exit without anybody knowing? Uh-oh, I came up with somebody else in their car. How can I leave? Oh, this isn't so bad after all. Gee, the food's kind of nice. I have my own space here. How many different moods? It's all changing. How many different sensations have you had? Your knees, your shoulders, your back. Tiredness, brightness, warmth, cool. Everything is changing. A fourth aspect of this bare attention that is really a key to the whole process of the meditation practice is understanding that our judgments on experience are extra. The thing that makes it bare attention, besides an accurate description, is not getting caught up in how we think things should be. Usually when we're having a pleasant experience, there's an addendum to that. Great, this is the way it's supposed to be. Or if we're having an unpleasant experience, it's, yuck, this is some kind of mistake. And if I were running the universe, I'd do a much better job than this. Mindfulness means not getting lost in the judgments. Now, this is easier said than done. And if you find out how to turn off judgments in your mind, I want to speak with you afterwards. Because it's a very, very deep conditioning that we have, that we bring to most every moment. Good, bad, like, dislike, want to get more, want to move away from. And this is another part of the practice aspect of experience.
I was a, a psych major when I was in school, in college and graduate school. And I thought I was a pretty perceptive person. I'd go to a party or a room full of people in some kind of social situation. I'd kind of perch myself up on the ceiling in the corner and check everybody out. Oh, there's the intellect. Oh, there's the lover. Oh, there's the rival. Oh, there's the loser. I don't know if I was right or not, but it was very paranoid doing that because if I was putting on a comment of how I thought people were the corollary to that was how am I coming off and when I first got introduced to the meditation practice and it, it sunk in the possibility of being aware without getting lost in the judgments it dawned on me that when there's awareness with a lot of judgment there's self-consciousness you feel separate from everything when there's awareness without the judgment there's simply consciousness there's simply noticing what's here but as I said it's not so easy to turn off the judgments in your mind and so the trick in this practice and it's very simple and wonderful trick is to simply not judge the judgments they'll be there pretty much oh this is a good one I don't like this but as soon as you see that judging is happening and you don't judge that it's no problem so there you are sitting in trying to follow your breath and you realize oh you've been gone for the last five minutes and the first thought might be oh thinking darn then there can be a tendency tendency to say oh judging I was just judging that I was thinking that's not right Uh oh I just was judging that and you can just keep one layer after another so you just get more and more stuck and confused at any one moment you can simply give some space to your experience and notice, oh, judging is happening. No big deal. Oh, and here's judgment. Like, here's the sound of a bird. Here's another breath. Judging. So when you don't judge the judging, this is true mindfulness and the possibility of ease and freedom. As I said, we start out with the breath so we can develop and um, sharpen our awareness. As the retreat goes on, we can apply it to any part of our experience. The Buddha had a discourse which is the basis of all of this style of meditation and all of uh, Buddhist meditation called the Discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness the Satipatthana Sutta he said one foundation or one area that you can be mindful of is experiences in the body and so he said 
He started out with the breath. He said, that's a good place to start. Feel the breath. As it comes in long, know that it's a long breath. As it goes out, know that there's the out breath. And then you can notice everything in your body besides the breath. Itching, tension, ease, vibration, energy, temperature, pressure. And that's another fine thing to become aware of. Then you can also notice all the other sense doors, physical sense doors. Sounds, smells, tastes, tactile experience. And so when we do the eating, doing it as a meditation is right in this uh, instruction of the Buddha. Pay attention to the physical realm in this non-judging awareness. Pay attention as you move in the four main postures. That is, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. Those are the four. So we do walking meditation. We did a little standing earlier. We do primarily sitting. And lying down is another place that you can be mindful of. There's a caution, however. Um, unless your body is, um, is hurting, it's really um, much more beneficial to sit up because it's so hard to be clear and alert while you're lying down. Unless you happen to be uh, up and it's two in the morning and you're having trouble going to sleep. That's a fine time. Try to pay attention. Okay. Often, you, you might drift off. But if you're, if you're here, then sitting in an alert posture, unless you've got some problems with your back or with your body, and I know what that's like. As I said earlier today, I had chronic back problems uh, early on. So anyway, that's... The one first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the physical realm. A second area to be mindful of is our movements toward or away from experience by noticing the pleasantness or the unpleasantness in the flavor of experience, which can easily lead to grasping or rejecting. A third area of mindfulness is of the mental realm of thoughts, feelings, emotions. And as we go on with the retreat, we'll be exploring having that sense of clarity and spaciousness with our moods and our emotions and our thinking process. And then the fourth area of mindfulness is the underlying principles of reality, noticing how everything changes and some other ones that that we'll get into as the retreat goes on. So you see, you don't have to make it an exercise in how good you can watch the breath or feel the breath. One teacher and colleague calls that a transcendental lobotomy. I'm good at watching my breath. It's a neat trick, but so what? If you can't apply what you discover and this attitude of mindfulness to the rest of your experience, it doesn't mean much. So you can watch the breath.
So don't get stuck into thinking, oh, well, I only felt the breath a little bit and then my body started getting to me. As we start to introduce other parts of our experience, you see that you can be with anything. Anything is just as good to pay attention as the breath. All right, so then you might ask yourself, why am I doing this? What am I doing developing mindfulness? Seeing things as they are, being here in the present, noticing how the present changes, and not getting caught in the judgments around our experience. Why am I doing it? What's the point? I mean, after all, your fantasies might be a whole lot more interesting than the next breath. And sometimes they are. <clears throat> So it's useful to have a good reason. There's lots of reasons. I could talk for quite some time and actually really everything that we say over the course of the next uh, week or eight days will be one way or another expressing the power and the, the value of mindfulness. I'll just mention a few right now. One thing that happens as you try to pay attention is you see how hard it is. Now this can be a very humbling revelation or it can be a cause for real um, appreciation. It is the first insight usually. This is sometimes called insight meditation. Well, the first insight that most people have is how out of control the mind is. Amazing. Now, you can feel really discouraged and say, oh my goodness. Or you can just recognize what has been happening all the time. Wow, look at the mind. Do that. And as you can see it more and more, just do its thing, then little by little, you don't take your thoughts quite so seriously. They're happening on their own. But when you can have some space around them and say, oh, look at the mind do that. Look at that thought. Imagine the possibility of having any thought in the world, the most bizarre, warped, yucky or embarrassing thought or angry or cruel thought and just have the response, well, that's an interesting one. And not feel blame or feel confused or feel guilty or feel puffed up for the good ones that come through. Gee, that was a neat thought that came through. I hope people see how wonderful I am. They're just popping through the screen. Well, as you give a little bit of space around them, you don't have to take them so seriously. And the wonderful thing that happens when you give some space around your thoughts is you begin to have some choice in your life as to which thoughts you want to give energy to and which thoughts you can choose to just fly by. The meditation very powerfully affects our perception on the tone of the thoughts. And so you can start to hear the thoughts that are coming in with a harsh edge or a kind of grasping or a little bit of fear behind them. 
And you can see, oh, those are just old tapes. I don't have to listen to that one. And at the same time, you can be sensitive in your life after coming out of a training period like this to feel the ones that are coming from a a deep, supportive place. This feels right. This doesn't feel right. And you can use your discriminating awareness and say, yeah, I want to give energy to this one. And so you start having some choice in your life. Just by not identifying with your thoughts. When I say not identifying with them, meaning not taking them to be who I am. Another property of mindfulness that's very, very potent is that it has the ability to purify our conditioning. A moment of mindfulness is a moment where you see what's here without grasping at the pleasant, without pushing away the unpleasant, and without identifying with your experience. In that moment of mindfulness, you are deconditioning the habits of reaction, of grasping and aversion. And in fact, technically, you can't have an unwholesome moment in the moment that you're mindful. Now, you can be angry and then notice that you're angry, as we'll do in a few days, incorporating moods and emotions. But really what's happening is, in the middle of the anger, there's one moment, perhaps, or a few, very, very, in rapid succession, this is happening, where you're not in the anger, you're noticing that there's anger. And in that moment, there is a break in the momentum and the power of that. I'm just remembering when I was a kid. I haven't thought about this for a while. Remember when um, I I would be scolded for something, and it seemed like there was this heavy drama going on. And then there was there was a, a space in me that just would kind of lift out uh, up on the ceiling, watching myself getting scolded and not being in the middle of the scolding. Well, that's an interesting show. Well, it's kind of like that. I haven't thought about that for years, but uh, in a way, that was a moment. That's a moment where you're not in the drama. And so in those moments where there's awareness of this difficult situation or whatever it is, you're not entangled in it. And that's a powerful force of purification. In fact, mindfulness brings about properties of clarity and spaciousness and... um, and openness with the moment that leads to what we call love or loving kindness. And in that, as we can start to approach each moment clear, there's a sense of trust in our process. We see we don't have to hold on to our experience. We can't hold on to our experience. We can't control it. And there's a more of a sense of ease and a flow in, in responding to what's happening instead of reacting. And this allows us more to simply be here. We're very good doers, many of us, but it takes some practice to learn to just be. 
without being productive, without having some kind of entertainment, simply to just relax in ourselves, to feel ourselves alive, to feel a centeredness in, in our being, where we can turn the lens inward instead of externally for a sense of peace and wholeness. And that affords a great deal of ease in our being, a sense of completion, where we're not looking outside of ourselves for happiness. Just as an, uh, an exercise, which I found very helpful, that I'll share with you, particularly since there's a number of people who are new to this practice, and how mindfulness works. Um, put your hand out in front of you. Try this. Now just move it slowly through space, back and forth, and put all your attention on feeling the movement. Right now, is there any fear or confusion or wanting for something extra to happen? No, there's just feeling the movement. Okay, you can put your hand down. That's mindfulness. It's not like the sky opens up and you got zapped and the big M of mindfulness has just appeared. It's very, very simple. It's just coming to a sense of fullness in this moment. And there's a balance that comes. There's a simplicity. And there's a feeling of completion where you're not needing anything extra to happen. That kind of mindfulness, that kind of awareness can be applied to the breath, sensations, body, thoughts, anything. Even if they're unpleasant as well as pleasant. Oh, and this is happening now. And with this mindfulness, you see clearly what's going on. And this is the opening up to wisdom. Because when you pay attention, the universe reveals itself to you. It reveals that law of impermanence. It shows very directly, and you'll see this time and again throughout the retreat, that when you try to hold on to experience, it's painful, it's suffering. And it also shows, as you see more and more, this process of body and mind, that you are in process and there is a fluidity to your being that is not separate from everything else in this process. This is the process of life happening in this room, talking to itself through us. And this is the understanding of the selfless nature of experience. And so, as I said last night, this is the the fathom-long body in which the universe reveals itself. You start to see that it's not different from everything else out there. And as the barriers lift, what is remaining is a sense of connection and love. So there's many, many, many ways that the mindfulness works. This just touches a few of them. It takes some real willingness and courage 
to do this practice. It's not easy, as I say, especially in the beginning. It gets a bit easier as as it goes on. Not linearly, you just get open, you open up to new aspects of the adventure. But as far as the settling in and the sluggishness and the the, uh, the restlessness and the wandering mind, that starts to change. It's actually possible to be mindful as the retreat goes on. Maybe now you're just catching you know, 1% if you're lucky. But in a few days, there's, you see actually stretches of mindfulness. It always, uh, there's a moment in almost every retreat where I've started to settle in and say, oh gee, this is so easy. How come it was so hard before? The commitment that you keep on having of bringing yourself back to here creates a certain momentum so that the practice starts to happen on its own. But what it takes is some real commitment and real courage to face anything that's happening and to say, this is okay too. As Ajahn Chah, this wonderful Thai teacher, said, take the one seat in the middle and let whatever is here be here and you bring a fullness of heart to it. This is the practice. And it starts to change the way we we relate to ourselves, to others, and to life. So I want to acknowledge the the work that you've been putting in today and um, encourage you to, to keep on with it. Because every single moment that you're mindful counts. Every single one, you are developing this momentum of understanding and clarity. So we can take some time Uh, If you have any questions, either about the day, the practice, or um, what's been said tonight. This is a typical first first day audience. Yeah. I don't try to tell too many jokes on the first day. They go over like a lead balloon. You know. uh, is there anything that you wish somebody else would ask? <laughs> yes. So what is it that brings you back? What part of you brings you back? Yes, it's the same 
And what have you come up with? They feel And what part of you is the I that doesn't know? Is that, is that more like the one that's wandering or the one that's bringing it back? Well, I feel like I'm wanting to make the one, wandering one into the bad guy. You know, ah. Uh-huh. Or the one that's like, I have to, you know. And then the other one's the parent, you know, the discipline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you think that those are the two main characters in, in that one? Yeah. Any other characters? <laughs> well, there might be, but today. Those are the. Those are the main two mm-hmm. eyes. Well, as we go on, you might find a whole cast in there. <clears throat> and what I would just invite you to do is see if you can. Um, you can accurately say, oh, this one is me, or oh, this one is who I really am. I haven't been able to, to find any one part of me that I can say, this is me. They're all you. And for convenience sake, we just call this me or I. And what the, the practice shows or starts to reveal over and over is that there's no fixed I that you can point to in this process that we call me. So they're all part of you. They all make up this process that's called you. Just like there's greed, there's a greedy you, or there's a loving you, or there's a compassionate you, or there's a fearful you. They're all part of the stew. And when you can start to see that there's not any one place in there that you can point to as being you, there's a, trim- there's a freedom that comes from that. Because then you see what's there beneath all those different characters. That's, that's something that's, that's not just limited to you and to this body. Okay, I'm, I'm not suggesting that you cut out planning and remembering. Um, I'm just suggesting you give a little bit more airplay to the present. Uh, you will have plenty of time for planning and remembering. And in fact, it's important to plan. We planned this retreat a year ago. Uh, the Buddha knew he, where he was going to be for the rains retreat a, a few months before. To plan consciously or to allow your creativity to flow consciously or as the muse strikes you is wonderful. 
to obsess about the future or to live for the next moment means that you're toppling forward. There's this sense of being off balance when it's always about the future. And so there you are. You know, I remember going on uh, vacations. I would go. I would be on a Greek island in like paradise, and thinking about this trip back home or this this big issue in my life, and not be able to be here for it. So there's a payoff in being here for your experience. Conscious planning is wonderful, but if you're living in the future, then you don't get to appreciate what's here now. Same thing with remembering. We learn all sorts of things, and I'm not saying to discard that or to discard all the beautiful memories. Those are lovely. Those are wonderful. We have a tendency to live either in the past or the future and to miss out on what's happening right now. So this is a special training period while we're here to more and more see the power of living here in the, in the present. And that starts to infiltrate the rest of your life. It's not that you're discarding future or past, but it brings a fullness to your life as you can learn to be more and more here. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, what's a good way to, make, to keep it Enjoyable when it seems so hard. It seems hard to keep it light when it seems hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to keep it light when it's hard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> um, it's and it's a good question. Um, well, tomorrow, uh, in particular, Carol's going to be talking about. Uh, Attitudes, and, uh, <laughs> but I'll give you uh, just my uh, just a few things off the top of my head. But we'll go into it probably more deeply tomorrow. First, to even see that it's getting a bit tight and contracted is the first step, because usually we don't even realize it. We just kind of find ourselves caught in this morass and and don't realize that we're caught. And we usually externalize and say, oh, the problem is out there. It's because this is happening and that is happening. To simply first see, oh, contracted. You can feel it in your body. You can feel your shoulders contract or your face start to clench. That's a signal to get some space. To be softer and easy. To lighten up a bit. And there's a few different ways to do that. First, Notice that you're trying hard. That might be one reason that things are are getting tight. Okay, and then just soften. Consciously bring some ease to your body. Soften your, your body. Soften your muscles. Take some deeper breaths if it happens to be on the cushion. If you're finding yourself really caught up, then you might even open your eyes and just bring some ease. You know, maybe... Try, don't try to be mindful for a few moments. Just, just let it go. And then come back in a little while. If you're um, doing the walking or if you're feeling tight, it's been happening for a little while, when you go for the walking, go at a very natural pace. Enjoy the outside. 
Like you like, most people like to go for a walk when they just either want to move their body or just uh, get some space in their life. Enjoy a walk. Go for uh, a natural walk. Explore. You you need to do this with discretion because you don't want to be doing it every single sitting, but uh, every single walking. But at times, to get some ease or some space, it's helpful. Sitting with a smile is really helpful. Just just try this if you haven't. Curl your lips up into a smile. It'll feel probably dumb, but just do it, okay? Doesn't that feel good? <laughs> it's amazing. You know, you just kind of, oh, the, the body says to the mind, it's okay, you can lighten up. Sometimes if it's really getting intense, what I do is look in the mirror and get exaggerated and get really intense. Yeah, what a bummer this is. You know, it feels so dumb. You just kind of lighten up on that. And it's helpful to bring some interest in what you're doing. For instance, in the walking, if you're feeling a little bit um, tight, besides just going for a walk each time, you might change the pace to make it a little bit more interesting, you know, make it a little like a dance. Not that you've got to be creative and get some kind of project every single moment, but if you can bring a kind of um, um, childlike sense of wonder, approach this moment anew, uh, those things can be helpful. And if you've really been tense and you've been tight or you're tired, the first couple of days, sluggishness is the hardest part because it takes a little while to tap into your own energy. And that low energy brings a certain rawness and sensitivity and uh, your thresholds for tolerance are, are much, much lower. As the energy picks up, which it does as the retreat goes on, you get more in touch with your own energy instead of relying on outside stimulation then um, it starts to shift. But if that low energy is really there and you've, you've done what you can and you just feel exhausted, then just relax for a little while. You know. After the meal, have a nap. You know. Again, there's got to be a balance in this and it's really, um, it's something that you've got to be honest with yourself because if if you find that your main priority is to lighten up and relax, you can be very laid back for the whole retreat and not say, you know, not have much accomplished. Oh, if I'm mindful, I'm mindful. Doesn't matter. You know, that won't get you much because it takes a real commitment to be here. So you've got to find a balance. If you're very tight, then relax. If you're feeling lazy or sloppy, then it's time to really renew your commitment and be here. It's that, that balance of just the right tension. The Buddha gave the image of, tight, of tuning a string on an instrument. If it's too tight, you don't get the right note. If it's too loose, you don't get the right note. It's just enough tension, just the right amount of tension to get the desired pitch. So it's getting a sense of balance in that, um, uh, that relating to your effort and your energy. Um, and you'll find your own ways to lighten up. Okay? Yeah, one last one. I overheard a couple of people talking about the, the flat, last night when we talked. Uh, 
And they were saying, they were talking about someone who knew you when you first started to practice. And they saw him a year later and they said, it was beautiful to see how, how far along the path he had come. And I started to wonder, what are you like when you're far along? <laughs> 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 how do you change? And is it now that hearing how you reply to this one, is it all balanced? Whatever if you were tight before, you're looser. If you were too loose, you're tighter. So find just the right place in the scale. That's where I should be. Um, What does it mean to be far along the path? I don't know if I could say with authenticity. Balance is a very big part of it. It's just being really natural. One thing, a few things that happen over the course of time that m- most everybody who who really um, makes this a part of their life find, there is more of a sense of trust and less, uh, less fearful and more of a sense that you can let go of control. It might be just small increments for the first years or 10 years the Dalai Lama has a very good suggestion he says look over 5 or 10 year periods if you're trying to get a a sense of of your practice not from last month or last year but a sense of balance a sense of of ease and and trust uh, a quality of making friends with yourself so you're not fighting yourself so much it's not to say you don't get lost I get lost plenty but one thing that that is easy for me to see from 20 years ago is I don't get lost for nearly as long. You know, you press the right button and I'm back in third grade. Or feeling insecure or uh, combative or whatever. But it's not very long at all. Whereas it could have been for weeks or months for the most part. These days, pretty much, I sit down and I feel what's going on and I notice, oh, freaking out. That's what's going on. Okay. (laughs) And just in that moment, it's not a big deal. So it's not like you're going to obliterate all your bad qualities, but there's more of a sense of ease with who you are and that starts to transform.